Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, October 28th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, the FDA just wrapped its third vaccine advisory committee meeting of the month, this one for kids. And while the vote was overwhelmingly positive, there was a lot more below the surface. STAT's Helen Branswell joins us to discuss. Then, the vaccine race books have arrived. We talk with Brendan Burrell about his book, The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. We'll start with some big news from this week in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. So before we get into what is a packed show this week, we should talk about some news uh, that came out just this Thursday morning, which is that John Mariganori, the longtime CEO of the stalwart biotech company Al Nylum, will be stepping down after nearly 20 years uh, at the helm of that company. Yeah, this was a big surprise. Uh, no one expected John to step down as the CEO. I mean, he's you know he's a kind of a titan of biotech. Obviously, a you know very well known, well, very well respected in the biotech industry. You know, beyond just running Al Nylum, but as more as kind of a thought leader for the entire industry. And uh, you know, again. CEO there for almost 20 years uh, and then announces this you know, this morning that that he's going to step aside. And um, I'm looking at the reaction in the stock. The stock is down as we record this. Uh, Al Nylum stock is down 17 percent. Yeah. And um, his successor is going to be Yvonne Greenstreet, who's been with the company for about five years. Um, she's the company's president and COO now. I'm curious to know your guys' thoughts. I mean, do you think the, the reaction in the stock um, has to do with just John Moraginori moving on and anybody who would replace him would get the same reaction? It's not necessarily who the replacement is, right? Or is it? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Although, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm taking it back. Perhaps the stock reaction is that it came as such a surprise. We've seen many sort of CEO secessions in biotech and pharma that, um, you know, are hinted at for, for months or even years ahead of time. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that it, it's the absence of John and not necessarily a reaction to, to who will be replacing him. But it is kind of curious. I mean, I think, and I don't mean this to uh, to disparage John Mariganori on, on this, his his big day, but 
sometimes we put a little too much into just who is occupying the chair of CEO as though there is this sort of like great man theory of history of how businesses work, which I think when you talk to people who who work in any company, that's that's not generally how it is. So John is perceived, I think, as a visionary. El Nilum um, was arguably kind of on a wing and a prayer from its outset. And he and his team uh, brought it to success in winning FDA approval for multiple treatments. But I, I don't think it's that he has some sort of special pixie dust and that El Nilum is now worth 17% less um, in like discounted future cash flows than it was yesterday. Yeah, I, I think the stock is also down, quite frankly, because the fact that he's leaving means that, that El Nilum, at least in the near term, is not getting acquired by anybody. Uh, you know, this is obviously a signal that the company is not is not in the midst of any kind of negotiations. And so, you know, that's probably a little bit of a disappointment because Al Nylum is a company that's kind of always on the list of sort of takeout candidates for uh, larger biotech or drug companies. I will say, you know, it's it really is the end of an era. Just thinking about John Moraginore moving on from this role. I mean, I'm sure both of you guys have had this experience, but like, when I was new to covering biotech, a fixture of my JP Morgan conferences was like going to the same, it seemed like the same room that they booked every year in the same hotel in Union Square. And it was always like this funky room that kind of like matched John's like funky outfits. Like he's so like stylish. He's got a lot of flair. And then he would like show me the slides and it would be, I was still like trying to understand the technology. It was so far away from, from being in, you know, being a drug at the time. And he would always be like, we're going to, have, you know, whatever it was, like 20 by 2020, or they they always had these like plans. And I mean, they got there and they did it. And it's like this really cool technology. Um, but that has just will always be a memory for me of like early days of biotech journalism in my life. Yeah, I, I have the same feelings, Meg. You know, John is obviously eminently quotable, right? You know, he's a guy who's very approachable. I think, you know, he, he's thoughtful and, you know, look, get deserves a lot of credit. You know, remember, you know, RNA interference was this pretty cool science. You know, it was, you know, it was a uh, Nobel Prize winning technology that had a lot of ups and downs. I mean, there was there was a period there where, you know, developing drugs and, you know, turning that science into kind of an actual treatment or actual products looked really dicey. Uh, and, and you know, to his credit, you know, and, and obviously other people at, at Al Nylum, they, they turned that now into sort of multiple, multiple different uh, products and multiple different medicines for patients. And, and so he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah. I mean, Adam, to your point about his being eminently quotable, before, looking back, you know, maybe six or seven years ago, uh, John was someone who, yeah, he was eminently quotable. And, and as we would learn, you know, people within Al Nylum would sometimes cringe when he was in front of a hot mic because he was very comfortable saying how he felt, including about other companies in uh, the biotech sphere, which kind of violated this like unstated omerta that companies rarely criticize one another. And I thought it was interesting that as his profile grew, he then went on to lead Bio, the, uh, the industry trade group. And, you know, maybe naturally, maybe it was an evolution, maybe it was deliberate. I feel like his criticisms of the industry were sort of tempered um, once he got that perch and once he joined uh, Twitter. And so I wonder, is that an evolution of John Mariganori or was it reaction to uh, the perch he reached? And as a result, will after his retirement, will he go back to being the occasional bomb thrower that we once knew him as? It definitely sounds like he's got another act in him. Like he's not—he's not just going to sort of walk away and play golf. But I do have a suggestion for you guys. Let's get uh, let's get John on the show next week. John, join us. John, if you're if you're listening, we're coming for you. <laughs> In 
In the past two weeks alone, the FDA's vaccine advisors have spent a collective 25 or so hours publicly meeting to discuss COVID vaccines, boosters for Moderna and J&J, mixing and matching, and most recently, a shot for kids. On Tuesday, that panel of advisors voted 17 to 0 with one abstention to recommend Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine for ages 5 to 11. We now await the FDA's emergency use authorization before yet another advisory meeting next week, this one from the CDC, after which time the shots could be made available to all 28 million kids in that age group in the U.S. Stats Helen Bransfell watched, analyzed, and along with Matt Herper, live-blogged all of those hours of advisory committee meetings. Helen, you deserve a gold medal for that. She joins us now. Uh, welcome back to the pod. Hi, guys. So, Helen, going into the advisory meeting for kids on Tuesday, it seemed like a lot of experts really sort of appeared to be treating a positive vote like it was a foregone conclusion. Um, but at one point during the discussion, it sounded like it might not go that way. What did you make of how much they grappled? They seemed to grapple with this vote. Yeah, it was a really surprising thing for me, although, I, you know, in retrospect, I don't think I should have been surprised. We've seen them do this before. Once they start talking, they almost work themselves into not quite a lather, but they do work themselves up a bit. And, you know, as, as the afternoon proceeded, it, it felt like we were watching them dance towards no, or at least some of them dance towards no. Several of the members of the committee, to me, looked like they were on the verge of, of voting against, um, recommending authorizing the vaccine for five to 11 year olds. And then, they danced their way back. And um, after the meeting, um, I was talking to Paul Offit, who one of the members of the committee. He's a vaccines expert at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And um, I said, you know, what was that about? And he said, oh, we do that. <laughs> he, he effectively said, you know, we, we'd like to work out what we're thinking about things, but at the end of the day, we vote the way we should vote. And, and he felt that that's what had happened that afternoon. Although, you know, as an observer, it was kind of surprising. So for people who aren't aware, I mean, this has been the same committee that has been meeting to uh, grant these massive authorizations or these votes um, on, on various vaccine authorizations dating back to late 2020. So for people like you, Helen and Meg, who've been tuning into these, you've kind of gotten to know them as well. They're, they're sort of like fixtures in your life and the way they think is something that you've had time to study. And so, Helen, you know, in your piece setting the stage for this latest panel meeting, you wrote uh, about Dr. Cody Meisner and that he was expected to be vocal throughout the meeting, potentially against authorizing uh, the vaccine for kids. He ultimately voted yes. But can you tell us a little bit about his his position going into this? So Dr. Meisner is a pediatrician at um Tufts in here in Boston. And he's been concerned all along about um, exposing children to these vaccines, you know, the length of time the vaccines have been around and studied, um, and, and whether children actually need them. And, you know, that was part of the broader debate, you know, the, the question about whether or not the need is sufficient to um, expose you know, large groups of children to the small, but, you know, existing risks of being exposed to these vaccines. Uh, you know, Amanda Cohen, who, who's from the CDC and who is on Verpac, made a very interesting point at, a, you know, sort of late in the discussions. She was talking about how little 
willingness there is to expose children to any risk at all. You know, that when you're talking about adults and, and risk, the, the calculus is just different. And that when you're talking about children, there's just so little willingness to, to uh, entertain any risk at all. And I think that that was, feeding into, you know, a lot of what we were hearing at this discussion. You know, Dr. Hildreth, one of the things that he really seemed to to focus on, um, as did a few others, including Dr. Michael Carrilla from the NIH, who was the one guy who abstained from the vote, was this um, CDC seroprevalence survey that suggested as many as 42% of kids in this age group in the U.S. have antibodies to the virus, meaning if that's correct that 42% of kids have already been infected. That's like six times higher than the number of cases that have actually been recorded. Um, And then they seem to question if so many kids have potentially some existing immunity from having had the virus itself, do they really need the vaccine or do they need both shots? What did you make of um, that focus on that number and that number itself? Were you surprised by how high it was? I was. Yeah, I was, but you know, I have to confess I haven't read um much about the me- methodology of that, but but I you know, did talk as I mentioned before, I was talking with Paul Offit after the meeting and um he thought that was probably um that that figure was probably not an accurate reflection of uh the seroprevalence rate in all kids. I believe his, the suggestion was that they use blood samples from children who went to emergency rooms or went to, you know, sought health care for a variety of reasons and checked them for antibodies. And that sample of kids might not reflect all children. You know, they may be sicker kids. They may be kids with comorbidities who interact more frequently with the healthcare system and, you know, may not reflect all children. So with this deliberation and the votes, it, it seems pretty clear that uh, that these vaccines for, for children are going to get conditional approval, probably final approval. So I guess I ask you, Helen, how do you think the rollout uh, in kids is going to go? You know, I think it's going to be complicated. Um, our colleague Drew Joseph and I wrote a piece we, that Stat published last week about, you know, the next phase of the vaccine rollout, generally speaking, both the pediatric rollout and the booster shot um, campaign. And, you know, there's just now going to be a bunch of different types of vials in fridges that... Um, people who are administering vaccines are going to have to pull out depending on who is in front of them. And they're going to need to keep it all straight. You know, there's one vial for that people 12 and older, it's got a purple label and a purple cap and another for uh, children 5 to 11, which has got an orange label and an orange cap. And presumably when the vaccines for younger children still are approved, they'll have a different label and cap as well, because um, that's a lower dose yet again. The other thing is that, you know, in the adult rollout at the very beginning, at least, we had um, lots of mass vaccination sites. Those don't exist anymore and won't be involved in this. This is really going to be, you know, much more driven by administration in pharmacies and pediatricians' offices and um 
you know, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly this moves. I mean, there we're all on Twitter and we've all seen, you know, people who have been counting the days and have wanted FDA to approve the vaccine for children, you know, months ago. And they're very vocal, but there are lots of people behind them looking at their kids and not, you know, wondering about whether or not they want to get them vaccinated or whether they need to get them vaccinated. And, you know, after the initial rush, I think we're going to see things slow down quite a bit. And, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how many kids in the 5 to 11 age group get vaccinated. So zooming out, Helen, as, as we mentioned, you have endured, uh, I don't know, upwards of seven of these all-day meetings, which is to say nothing of the corresponding meetings that take place at the CDC uh, and sometimes the WHO. And, and I gather that, you know, one of the main purposes of having all this stuff in public is to grant transparency to this process and to conceivably assuage concerns of the public about how these vaccines are being rolled out. So for you, as someone who who we've kind of strapped in clockwork orange style to to watch these do you think the process is is working do you think that that intended goal is actually taking place or is it conceivably leading to to more confusion you know i i i i applaud the way it's conducted i think it's it's really um laudable to do in public i don't know at the end of the day if it does what they want it to do, um, you know, if you were at all hesitant about whether or not you wanted to vaccinate your child and you sat through the discussion on Tuesday afternoon, I don't know that you would have come away thinking, oh, yeah, I absolutely have to be in line as soon as the, the CDC signs off on this. Sort of switching gears out of COVID for a second, Helen, you've also been watching really closely for signs of flu globally, and you recently flagged a potentially concerning signal out of Europe. So I didn't flag it. The European Center for Disease Control flagged it. Um, Well, you flagged it to me, so. Yeah. Okay. So yes, I'm watching flu really closely because, you know, there's been this just extraordinary situation where there's been almost no flu since um, effectively the end of March 2020. And, and, you know, every last winter people were predicting that twindemic of flu and coronavirus and that didn't happen and some people are predicting again for this winter and it remains to be seen whether it'll happen um this flu will come back at some time but it remains at really low levels globally and you know it it will take a while for it to sort of get seeded into different places and to take off so when it takes off it'll likely be big but whether when that'll be i don't know um I got this press release from the ECDC this week talking about higher than expected for this time of year rates of infection in Croatia with H3N2, which is an influenza A virus that causes severe disease in older adults particularly. And so the ECDC was warning that this might be a sign of the return of flu. 
I then noticed that uh, the day that release came out was also the day the ECDC launched their, you know, flu shot awareness campaign uh, for uh, the 2021-2022 season. So that's not coincidental that they're releasing that data. Not to suggest the data don't exist, but, you know, it 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 was part of a campaign. And, um, you know, I, I just think it remains to be seen how much flu there is. So, Helen, I hope you get a break from watching endless hours of uh, government meetings on webcasts. Uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks. I actually have another one coming up next <laughs> Tuesday, the uh, <laughs> Advisory Committee on Immunization it Practices. Ends, Helen, it never ends. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but hopefully after that, we'll have a bit of a break for a while. It'll be interesting to see, though, whether or not um, – FDA calls a VRPAC meeting for the Moderna pediatric, well, mm. for Moderna's 12 to 17 year old. Um, well, well if, they, if they do, we will be tuning in to your coverage. <laughs> and I will be strapped into the chair <laughs> watching it. <laughs> that is a very funny mental image. <laughs> Thanks again, Helen. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. It begins in December 2019, with a man walking into Wuhan Central Hospital with a cough and a fever. Then came a global effort to stem the spread of the novel coronavirus and find vaccines to halt it in its tracks. We're talking about The First Shots, a new book from Brendan Borrell, which goes inside the frenetic response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the many interesting characters who would come to shape recent history. Brendan joins us now to talk about it. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Brendan, I heard about your book early on, and an editor described it, your proposal even, as reading like a spy novel. And it really does. It's so fast-paced, and you really get inside a lot of the government players who were kind of responding early, people who were on the ground who we maybe didn't know about in China early on. Um, and then you also tell the story of the formation of Operation Warp Speed. Tell us about the approach you took to this book and how you wanted to go about telling this story. You know, yeah, going into this, I, I proposed this book before Operation Warp Speed was even a thing. It was in April. Um, we were just starting to hear some, so, you know, talk that there needs to be a larger response. And then this announcement happens when I submitted my proposal. And I said, whoa, wait a second. And so there was this process where I went from thinking, oh, I'm going to tell the story of all the vaccine companies to being like, I need to get inside the government. I need to understand how this works. And um you know, I'd had uh, spoken to to a guy named Michael Callahan, who's like this longtime disease fighter, and he had been called in to advise the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Uh, this is this like tiny, obscure office in the health department that ends up being part of the the creation of Operation Warp Speed. Um, and so I try to, you know, it, it, it was, I mean, there's so much secrecy around the program. We got sort of the public statements here and there, but we didn't really understand how it worked and who was running it and so on. And so it, that became sort of my goal was, okay, I want to get as much information as possible. And gradually over the course of the year, um, I managed to, to, to reach people who were in these, these meetings about the clinical trials. Um, some people shared notes with me. And I, I started to feel like, wow, I can really craft a narrative around how 
this public-private partnership played out because it is such a test case. I think you guys know very well vaccines are a market failure situation. Um, and here's a, a chance to look at how the government stepped in, figure out what works and what didn't. Um, and so that that was kind of my goal. Yeah, Brendan, I, I really like the way you approach the book. And, and you mentioned Michael Callahan. To me, you know, as I was reading the book, and, and I've read about just about half of it so far, you know, to me, I, again, it re- it sort of reads very cinematic. Um, and I did sort of think I did sort of think of the movie Contagion at some points when I was reading it, because you're just describing these r- super fascinating scenes. And Callahan is a little bit like the Kate Winslet character in Contagion, you know, kind of sent off to, to Wuhan. And then, you know, he's sent off to Japan to kind of look after the U.S. passengers <laughs> uh-huh. that were stranded on on that cruise ship. Um, but I also wanted to get into, I wanted to get into your, um, the, the, I guess maybe like a central character um, in the book, who is this Robert Cadlick, as you mentioned, assistant secretary to this obscure department within HHS. Tell us about Cadlick and kind of why he was so important. Yeah, Cadlick has, you know, he's a fixture of the biosecurity scene in D.C. Uh, he was an Air Force doctor, deployed to Iraq multiple times in the 90s, uh, was detailed to the CIA for a while and became this this big voice in, hey, we need to prepare for anthrax attacks. Um, and he was part of the, cre- you know, the, the creator of this, this office. He was like, we need a kind of FEMA for biosecurity that will respond to a biological weapons attack. Uh, and then, you know, he, he was working at the Senate at the time when he created it. And then 10 years later, he's called uh, by his old friend, uh, Senator Richard Burr, and says, hey, do you want to be the assistant secretary? And he's like, of course I do. <laughs> That's a dream job. Uh, lo and behold, he gets hit by four hurricanes uh, in a row. And then suddenly this pandemic breaks out. And it's like Cadillac is being put to the test in a way he never anticipated. And we had you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, a flurry of articles that sort of pointed the finger at him for bad management, um, you know, making him just look like a shady character, right? And then generally everybody, including myself, kind of thought Cadillac was a bad guy, except for the fact that I knew he was buddies with Michael Callahan. And so that made me think like, huh, maybe there's some more nuance here because I just, I had to trust a guy who's you know, spent his life going to hot zones and risking his life to save people. And he's saying, no, Cadillac is a good guy. You have to trust me on this. So I tell his story of being, you know, this reviled man in the media, disliked by the Trump administration itself, and basically having to play a a covert role within the administration to make programs happen throughout the course of the year while he's you know, bidding, getting dumped on by Kushner and all of the Trump associates. And he's just trying to do right by the American people. And I found that a compelling way to tell the story of Warp Speed. He's he's neither a hero nor a villain, I think. <laughs> so in, I guess if retrospect is the right word, but when we gaze back on those early days, Operation Warp Speed has aged into being one of the few clear successes, I think, of at least the U.S. pandemic response by virtue of us having um, three vaccines available in this country and and the incredible science that was done uh, in many cases on the government's dime. But your book is, is very much a behind the scenes look at warp speed. And it wasn't always didn't always seem destined to succeed. As you just mentioned, some of the personalities within the Trump administration um, that uh, that you illuminate in the book were not always at odds. So I guess, you know, we see Alex Azar and, and, and sort of his motivations and his decision making. Michael Caputo, who people may remember um, from the early days of 2020, was definitely a name in the headlines. And you mentioned Jared Kushner as well. 
I don't know. Can you shed a little bit of light for people who haven't read the book yet? You know, what what do they stand to learn about just how the warp was sped in those early days? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think what I what I aim to do with the book is you see that I mean, vaccines are significant medically; they're significant from the business side of things. But to all of these players, these you know, this political jostling, vaccines are kind of a crown for them. They're their way to maintain power, they're the way to, uh, you know, I mean, I, I I really tried to tell their personal stories. I mean, whatever their politics, I wanted to understand why um, they were trying to do what they were trying to do. Um, and they, I think these people, even though, you know, they, they're not perfect, <laughs> um, they, you know, they wanted to deliver vaccine to the American people. I, I, I think, a, uh, well, I'll, I'll cut it off there. <laughs> oh, I totally want to know what you're going to say. <laughs> the assassin. About Michael Caputo? Um, well, no, Michael I was... Michael Caputo. <laughs> about Mike, Mike, Michael Caputo. Uh, I had a threatening phone call from Michael Caputo during all of this. I mean, he was so complicated. He was such a blowhard. And I, I mean, you just... I couldn't believe when, when I started talking to him. And I ended up talking a lot for this book because he was... He likes to talk and he doesn't care how you portray him. <laughs> um, you know, you you like him, but you look at the things he did and you're just like, huh? So so with all of these characters, they they were they were very complicated people, more complicated than I thought going into this. You also through this reveal some like just incredible details that I think we didn't know about before because you got access to some of these just like in the moment sort of documents. One of the factoids I took note of from your book was that Pfizer originally offered $100 a dose as the price to Operation Warp Speed for the vaccine, which was more than double what Moderna had offered. And Slawi, Monsef Slawi, the, the sort of scientific lead of Operation Warp Speed, and Gus Perna, the, the military lead, said no. Is that right? That's right. That was kind of the early number that was floated at some sort of meeting in, in like June um, you know, uh, that, that was a number that, that, uh, you know, I mean, this is the early days. I don't think Pfizer even knew how much they were going to be able to scale up, how much they were going, how much these mRNA vaccines are, were going to cost. I mean, if you, if you roll back the clock a couple years ago, I mean, the price of an mRNA, you know, the amount of mRNA that's in a vaccine dose, you know, would have been several hundred dollars, right? Um, so, uh, so I mean, the way that the price has gone down so rapidly has actually been been pretty fascinating. And I think, um, you know, Moderna was asking for about twice as much as it got, is if if I recall correctly. So, so all these companies were were, plan, you know, trying to figure out what the, what the price the the market would bear would be. And reading your book, Brendan, I learned that Peter Marks, uh, you know, the FDA's top official in charge of a lot of the vaccine stuff, he likes to ride bicycles around DC. He does. He, yes. He, uh, I, I describe in the book this this terrible meeting at the White House. When yes, I, I love that. I love that scene. That's a great scene. It's really vivid. Your heart just goes out to him. <laughs> it's, it's uh, he is so passionate and uh, is so emotional. Uh, so he, he was devastated after that meeting, pedaling his bicycle back home, uh, not wearing a helmet. Um, but yeah, he, he's, he's, he's a great guy. The not wearing a helmet thing got me. Because, like, thinking to myself, I mean, if he had an accident, like, where would we be? 
Also, the scene where you describe how he, like, made the, like, purple buttons for Operation Warp Speed, like, himself, and he designed the logo, and then they turned out to be the wrong color, but he, like, handed them over anyway. <laughs> it just was so sweet. So your book is being made into an HBO. Is it a movie? Is it a miniseries? And what are the plans for it? And who's playing who? <laughs> well, I can't answer all those questions, but the it's it's been optioned, which is what every author wants to happen. Um and uh, that, that was early on. And I know that, you know, Adam McKay, who's this superstar director, producer, he's behind Succession and even Anchorman, uh, which is one of my personal favorites. Um, he's been he's been involved in that. You know, what I've heard is they they have a screenwriter. They've been reaching out to people to get become come on as consultants. Um, but, I you know, who knows if it's going to be green light green lit? I, I hope so. Um, because yeah. <laughs> well, I'm personally interested in seeing how they kind of incorporate cousin Greg, uh, into the story <laughs> of, uh, the COVID vaccines. The book is called First Shots. It's written by Brendan Barl. It's out this week. It's a great read. I recommend everyone picking it up. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you have a funny story we should hear about John Moraginore. You could do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.